Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. It's February, and here in the Black Mountains of Wales, it still very much feels as though we're in the grip of winter. But fortunately, I have a full hour of podcasting sunshine for you. It was carefully bottled on a summer's day last year, aged in oak barrels over the autumn, and is now ripe and ready for your listening pleasure. I've been presenting The Bike Show for an almost unbelievable 13 years now, and probably the best thing about doing it is that I get to meet my heroes. And not only do I get to meet them, but more often than not, I get to go for a bike ride with them. My guest on the show today is a writer that I have admired from afar for many years now. His name is Mike Parker, and the first book of his that I read was called Map Addict. It's a warm, funny, and really insightful history of the Ordnance Survey, the people who make their beautiful maps, and all the people like me who just can't get enough of them. In his book The Wild Rover, Mike walks Britain's remarkable network of footpaths and bridleways and uncovers the stories of how they came to be. He's also written a lavishly illustrated history of Britain's roads. In 2015, Mike tried to get himself elected to Parliament. Unfortunately, the voters of Ceredigion had other plans. But Parliament's loss is his reader's gain, because he's back to writing books. Our paths finally crossed last summer, when Mike was attending the National Eisteddfod, the huge annual festival of Welsh language, culture, music and song, that my town, Abergavenny, was hosting. I felt it was a perfect opportunity to ask Mike to go for a spin. Let's get on our bikes. Um, you've got the Brompton today. I'm on the elephant bike, so we're not going to be breaking any uh, land speed records. We're going to be heading up to Clanvoice to cross the uh, Usk Bridge, up the railway path, cycle route 46, and then we'll double back on ourselves along the um, Mon and Brett Canal and uh, bring you back into the uh, festival site here. And uh, maybe we'll have a swim in the river if the sun comes out. How about that? It look, it's not looking... The greatest swimming weather at the moment, but then uh, I've swum in worse, quite honestly. I've swum in the pouring rain, to be honest, so I'm quite happy to go anytime. Well, let's get going. We're riding along now on a little strip of land between the Eisteddfod mice on our right, uh, the nice teepees and flags and pavilion, portaloos. It looks great, doesn't it? I mean, it's a really... I mean, the, the thing about the Eisteddfod is that it moves around. It's a moving festival, so it visits a different part of Wales every year which I think is one of its great, great strengths, you know, because you get to see a different part of the country and, you know, there's economic benefits and all the rest of it as well. But it's a great, you know, it is, they say, the largest indigenous cultural festival in Europe. So it's, it's you know, it's a Welsh language festival, but there's a load of people who come here who don't speak Welsh and there's translation facilities and all sorts. It's a real, it's such a big part of Welshness and I'm so, you know, as an incomer, uh, I'm very proud to be you know, an adopted part of it, really. Do you feel that? Um, well, I, I think we're heading that way, maybe. I mean, you have learnt the Welsh language. Well, I live, in, I live in an area where, you know, the vast majority of people speak Welsh as their first language. So I would miss out on an awful lot of local life if I didn't. Just for that reason, really. I'm, not, I'm never going to be a scholar in Welsh. I'm never going to read complicated 19th century novels in Welsh. But just to be able to be down the pub and not have everybody else having to change language just to accommodate me when their natural language would be to speak Welsh in the pub, you know. And that's, 
that's why I learnt it. And uh, I'm very glad I did because it's, you know, you can quite happily live anywhere in Wales without it. But you'll only kind of have half a life, really, if you do. It's very rarely heard in Monmouthshire where we are now. Um, I think it was pretty firmly stamped out and we are right on the border as well. But um, there are Welsh medium schools, so um, the younger generation may be uh, uh, going to be repopulating the county with Welsh. And uh, as parents, people like me, well, I feel like an obligation to uh, to learn it so that they can't be scurrying off having a secret language that I can't understand. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And I think having the ice deathbed here, having it in areas where the language isn't strong and hasn't been for a long time, you know, I mean, that's, that's the point, isn't it? Is really good because it does, I mean, the last, you know, a few years ago, I can't remember how many years ago, it was Never Vale. Again, a bit like this, same sort of proportion of people, you know, in single figures, really, the proportion who do speak the language. But it gave a real boost to it in the area and you know, had effects for years really so um, no it's really worth it. I also feel that and maybe this is the romantic in me but um, the language of Wales is kind of the ancient language of British Isles really at least going back as far as what 4,000 years ago Celtic people would have spoken something potentially recognisable in modern Welsh wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Welsh without a shadow of a doubt is the precursor to all British languages. Um, and for me, I tell you, a big, big motivation for learning it was living here and being a walker, being an outdoors kind of person. You know, I'm there with my map in my hand, looking out over all these mountains and valleys. They've all got names. All those names mean something. And not to have a first, the first idea of what the hell they were talking about or even how to say them. That was what motivated me, first of all, to, to tackle the language and get it under my belt. Just out of no, because the names are always fantastically descriptive. I mean, if you can read the map and you can read the names and you have an idea what it is they're referring to, they refer to, you know, his, the, the history and the identity of the place is often there in the names. So it's really good to be able to decode the map, if you like. Do you think that's different for Wales than for England, where there are traces of, I guess topographic features or toponymic features in place names um, that we don't really understand anymore as modern speakers of English because they are Anglo-Saxon and that's kind of a little bit lost in our in our language now with the Norman influences and the evolution of, of modern English that a lot of those words that mean something I'm just trying to think of it, I'm completely blanking on an example but um, ham mm. for instance is farmstead i think isn't it mm. and yeah the home or, or yeah it, it, i mean not dissimilar to home really i mean in as much as uh you know ingo is a tribe isn't it i mean so you get names like nottingham and birmingham and gillingham they are you know that's the name so yeah but the, but you're right you have to kind of learn a whole new language to be able to undecode a lot of the english names because that language has, has sort of disappeared from from contemporary discourse but in Welsh, it hasn't. What you're seeing there on the map with the names of the mountains around us um, and the villages and all the rest of it is still pretty much the, the Welsh as, as is spoken. So the language there. hasn't evolved so dramatically from 800 years ago as English has? Well, I mean, more than that, really. I mean, I think you can go back well over a thousand years. And, you know, if you can cope with modern Welsh, you will be able to read a text from the 12th century uh, in a way that you probably couldn't if you tried that 
if you, as an English speaker, you tried that with a with an English text of the 12th century, you'd have to learn. You know, I mean, most of us have got awful memories of picking through Chaucer and all the rest of it. You know, and do you think it's also the case that Wales has just so much more landscape that you kind of need more descriptive words in place names to understand your way around, to tell people where you're going? Because there must have been times when people didn't have maps, they had mental maps, and so words in an oral tradition would have done the job of maps. If the place name is something like Deep Ford by the Waterfall next to yeah. the Scary Forest, you kind of that's a clue that, oh, maybe, maybe there's an alternative route that's a better one. Yes, that's right. That, that, there, is a, there is indeed a clue there that perhaps it might not be the best. I mean, there's a house down the road from me, actually, and it's called Kilhile, which means... And that's not an unusual name in, in, in Welsh houses, actually. There's, you'll see a few around. What that means is, is kind of narrow sun. So, i.e., it doesn't get much sun. And quite possibly for large parts of the year in the winter, no sun at all. It's a bit of a warning, you know. If you get a, And, and uh, my partner, who's, who's from the area, grew up born and bred, uh, he was telling me that that house, as long as he remembers it for the last 40 years, has always been lived in by people who kind of bought it for the, for the, for the great dream. They, don't, they didn't know what it meant. But to a Welsh speaker, that would be a warning. No, don't buy that. So you're cha- you're cha- going to see the sunshine. Change you know? the name and add... Yeah, uh, yeah. add a few grand to the, to the price, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Shower a hile, you know, lots of sunshine or something like that. But that would be a big, fat lie. All right, well, let's get over, the, uh, over this Usk Bridge. This is uh, beautiful bridge. the beautiful stone bridge here over the River Usk. Um, uh, I think Wikipedia told me that it was built by the men of Jasper Tudor um, in the reign of Henry the sixth think. Right. and um yeah it was much more difficult to get the waitros before they did that <laughs> it's amazing i mean you just these, these bridges are incredible though because the, the traffic on it now it's just solid uh, and obviously they never built them for that but it, it's incredible isn't it right we're well, now enter the traffic now uh, we're going to go across here and then turn right uh, almost immediately
Peter, go by Thunny Gwyn, where the Cadwy Gay and Prasir, and Techremind and Drum, a Himbo here by the Lisa, can in Yacharkum, can in Yacharkum. So we're now uh, entering an underpass that goes under the heads of the Valleys Road. Wow. And a uh, nice bit of echo in here. It's very uh, clockwork orange, isn't it? <laughs> okay, we're going to turn right here and go through the village of Clampoist, and then we're going to turn right onto the old railway path. The old pub there is now a spice lounge. There's a lot of closed down pubs around here, I've noticed, which I'm quite surprised by. Well, Abergavenny did have a lot of pubs, I think, well, in the 19th century, from all the railway people and yeah. the, the farmers and the, the drovers. Seven miles an hour, according to that speed thing they're going. Yeah, we've just been clocked at seven miles an hour and uh, overtaken by a black jaguar, giving us a funny <laughs> look as I'm holding a microphone, talking, well, it, talking to Mike. You look quite weird, Jack, to be honest. People are quite polite on the roads here, the car drivers. I have found that to be the case. Not so much if you go into the valleys, like the valleys of the South right. Wales coalfield, where there's a bit more of a boy racer yeah, yeah. kind of attitude. But yeah, rural cycling around here is a lot better than rural cycling in Surrey. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, or even Cheshire, to be honest. Yeah, that whole car culture thing, it's, you know, I mean, I drive, I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I <laughs> said I didn't. Uh, mind you, where I live, you, you'd, be, you'd be very hard-pressed not to. But, um, no, it's... Well, when I did Mapping the Roads, which is a sort of history of the British road system and how it's been mapped, I mean... I mean, one of the periods that really fascinated me was that late 19th century, that kind of flowering of the cycling boom, really, the, the, when the first mass-produced bikes were, were available and people went for them and and used the roads, you know, the old roads that very dusty and all the rest of it, but, you know, cycling became huge. And just before the cars arrived, really. Because roads at that point were a little bit in a state of neglect, weren't they, with the coming of the canals and the railways? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, I mean, the coaching age had long gone, and that was the last time they were used on any significant uh, amount, I guess. Because those were the first popular maps, weren't they? The coaching maps, those kind of strip maps, linear maps, yeah. Ogilvy, isn't it, and, and that sort yeah. of thing. And loads of, loads of imitators of Ogilvy. I mean, he spawned a, a right market. You know, it's interesting what a map maker chooses to put on and what they choose to leave off, yeah. um, knowing their market and what their market's going to be interested in. I remember seeing one strip map that I thought was fabulous because it had quite well-described vantage points for looking at certain important stately homes yeah. along the way. It's so a way you could yeah. look up to whoever lord such and such yeah. country seat because that's the kind of thing that people riding up in a stagecoach would yeah. want to do, look up from their map to, uh, to see some point of interest. It was also a canny way on behalf of the map maker of trying to interest a target audience, you know, because everybody who had their houses named on those it wasn't just Lord and Lady What's-A-Face it was the new merchant class, they were getting their houses mapped on a lot of those. And, you know, they were the kind of nouveau riche of the day. And they loved having their houses on the map. So it was a canny marketing point because they knew that they would be the people to buy. Oh, they sell uh, a few more copies. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
people with money, wasn't it? So yeah, it was it was a it was a bit of both. But yes, some of them got ridiculous. They were absolutely plastered in these houses uh, that, that people could gawp at and and be a bit jealous of. I mean, so if you if you got on the map, you know, you'd made it really. So I suppose it was. I guess that's the expression on the map. Well, yeah, quite. And playing to people's people's vanity, I guess. So we're riding along um, quite a nice, smooth tarmac surface of the old railway path of the line that runs between, well, used to run between Abergavenny, Clydeck and Bryn Mawr up a, a, a little way along the heads of the valleys. And this is a, a line that was built really to, um, to put the canal out of business, I think. But um, the canal is uh, still going, the railway is not. Yes. It's funny now canals have come back into... You know, they become, well, so do railways. I mean, there's the amount of steam railways and they're trying to build and extend and, you know, the heritage transport thing's massive now. So this would have been an industrial railway, but it would have also served people up in the valley, uh, bringing them down to Abergavenny on, on a Tuesday, which is still market day in Abergavenny, although the cattle market's gone. Um, and apparently there were, you know, trains full of, people bringing them down and then at weekends people would come up to a little chapel up at Cliddock. we're not going to get that far this on this ride unfortunately um to get married oh, they have these sort of wedding trains right. they go up there and yeah. really come back and have a party this is my first time on a bike in quite a long while jack they're doing very well I'm sweating like a glass blows ass crack as the saying goes well, you'll enjoy that dip in the usk afterwards then. <laughs> oh, that'll kill me, yeah. Some of these uh, railway paths I find a bit depressing because you're kind of in a green tunnel and you could be anywhere in yeah. the country and you can't see anything. You don't go through any real places. And it's all very nice that they've resurfaced them and they're great for riding along with kids, people yeah. who are not very comfortable on roads. But this one is really good because it's on a, on a steep slope so to our right, we've got fantastic vistas that open up. There's a little gap in the trees of the Black Mountains. Yeah, and down to the Usk, I guess, is that? Well, over to the Usk and then up yeah. to the Sugarloaf Mountain and uh, yeah, other peaks in the Black Mountains. Yeah, it's, it struck me that they should do more to um, cut down some of the trees to open up these views yeah, on these railway paths because they let them get they all grown up. You can't really see where you are. No, you're right. It's a beautiful valley though. I mean, I, was just, well, I came down last night and I'd forgotten there's a very special light in Monmouthshire, which you just don't get anywhere else. And at sunset last night, I was staying in a place outside Abergavenny and the sunlight just flooded down the valley at, at dusk. And it, yeah, it was that Monmouthshire light that I'd completely forgotten about. It's a very special thing. So would that, ex would that explain why Turner came and hung out here? Well, they, they, that's what they were after all the time, wasn't it, those artists? They were always looking for that special quality in the light. Thank you. 
So there is a long history of English people coming into Wales for various reasons and it's something that you've taken an interest in because you are one of them, one of us. When did it start? Can you trace the kind of history of uh, English interest in in this land, in this country? Well, it's been going on forever to some extent. Obviously, cross-border traffic has always been a thing. It's the drovers taking their sheep and geese and cattle to market in London or Birmingham or wherever they used to go. But I think, for me, I think it really began with the sort of first great romantic age, really, in the late 18th century. And that was when people identified, you know, the picturesque and the sublime with the right components in it. So you'd have the mountains and the waterfalls and the woods and the viewpoints. And Wales took off then, really, as a, as a romantic destination. And why was it then? Was it because people say it was because of the Napoleonic Wars made the Grand Tour... Um, impracticable because it was Europe was at war and so people had to have staycations. Yes, instead. Well, yes, to some extent that's true. I mean, you know, the, the, the you know, bright young Turks from posh houses in England couldn't any longer go and travel around Italy or France or whatever. So they had to look a bit. They had to look to Scotland or Wales or the Lake District. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of accounts in the National Library in Aberystwyth written by these well-to-do mainly young men, uh, you know, detailing their journeys and having a bit of a laugh at the locals. And my theory, I mean, I just, done a, just did a lecture recently in the National Library about Wales as the kind of eternal embodiment of the picturesque to visitors, particularly from England, you know. And my contention is that that comes particularly into fashion, really, at times of international difficulty. You know, we want... The picturesque, we want the illusion of nature unspoiled. And it is an illusion because, you know, there's nowhere, there is no wilderness in this country, not even in Scotland. You know, there's nothing, wilderness is something untouched by the hand of man. And there's nothing untouched by the hand of man on this island. And has that continued from that time? But it comes in and out of fashion, like all fashions, you know, they, they, they go around in circles, don't they, really? And Wales became particularly big as the embodiment of the picturesque in the turn of the 19th century. So the last half of the, well, not the last half, the last couple of decades, really, of the 18th century. And then the first few decades of the 19th. Uh, and the next sort of period in which it became really big as a destination and as, a, as, a, as the embodiment of the picturesque was in the interwar years, between, particularly in the 30s. And you th- again, the world was turning nasty, Dark clouds gathering, you know, strife, great strike, terrible hardship um, in lots of places. And, and it was all, you know, picture postcard Wales. It was the sort of romantic image of Wales as this land of, you know, well-to-do peasants and their funny language and all the rest of it. So, and I think it's the last 10 years as well, I would say, that Wales has become the same thing is happening. And again, we see dark clouds gathering, we... You know, the world is a bit of a strange and scary place at the moment in, in so many ways. And um, Wales is a kind of balm, you know, that kind of landscape as a balm to the soul, as somewhere that you can recharge and get some perspective. And, you know, it's, it's, it's needed now as it ever was. And it's so that's my theory that it is particularly at difficult times in history. It becomes especially important. But it, I, I guess it's always there, you know, because it is such a beautiful country. I mean, there's not 
you know, I've, I've traveled every single corner of Wales for the things I've done over the years. And there, there really isn't a duff bit. There's some bits that I'm more fond of than others, but there's not, there's nowhere that I just wouldn't dream of wanting to go to because it's dull or anything. It's, it's, it's an amazingly beautiful country, an amazingly deep and rich country as well. And how does that interest from outside affect Wales itself and people who are from here? Is it a good thing, a bad thing? Does it depend? I think it's both. You know, for better it gets sort of attention and tourism brings money. Um, but I think, and certainly this has been my experience of travel writing, is, is my belief is that tourism is a wonderful industry. We're all tourists somewhere. But when it's the only thing in town, that's when it all goes a bit wrong. And you see it all around the world you know when tourism is is the only show on the road the only way to make money places become very sort of prostituted and they become a bit hollowed out a bit of pastiche of themselves uh, and you can see that in parts of you know if you've ever been up to Loch Ness and around there I mean you know parts of the west of Ireland uh I guess most similar topographically and culturally to Wales you can see that happening there now Wales has always been a bit off that radar it's nowhere near as well known internationally uh, even after the football, although that might have changed it a bit. But, uh, you know, it's nowhere near as internationally known as is Ireland or Scotland, you know, and the urge that people have for that kind of Celtic thing, you know, that misty Celtic other world that people want to believe in and want to believe is there. Wales has kind of managed to avoid a lot of that just by its anonymity, really. Uh, and being a bit chippy and being a bit of a difficult culture, you know, the language is still strong here in a way that Gaelic is not in Ireland or Scotland. And that scares some people, I don't know. Uh, but I think it's served it quite well, Wales, because it's kept it real, you know, in a way, in ways that parts of Scotland and parts of Ireland really have become terrible pastiches of themselves. And I would hate to see it happen here. Well, canal boat is um, passing underneath us. We're standing on the railway bridge overlooking the Monenbrecht Canal, uh, which is, uh, yeah, that way is slightly more picturesque. Would you say we've got a bit of... Uh bit of elevation in the distance there but this is kind of a nice little intimate scene that's, with the, the wharf, wharf up there yeah that's yeah. that's so that's, that's Gavilan Wharf oh Gavilan yeah Gavilan right. Wharf yeah because it's a, I remember going on the, the canal many years ago on a boat just for a short bit and what's amazing about it is that you're you're elevated aren't you because usually on a canal you're down the bottom of the valley but you're a couple hundred feet up for most of the route of the Monmouthshire and Brecon so you've got you've got easy flat walking or cycling and views well, let's talk about incomers and, and your thoughts on, on incomers in, in Wales and what people who are from here think of us. The, the area I live in, which is very Welsh-speaking, uh, near Machantleth, uh, but it's very cosmopolitan as well. It has this, this kind of West Coast. The Aberystwyth Machantleth area is an amazing part of the world. It's, it's always had this kind of, sort of outward-looking, quite sort of international vision. I mean, Aberystwyth is the home of the, cap- of the National Library. It's had a university there since the 1870s. It's always been kind of... It's a seaport, you know, like a lot of places on the coast. It's, I remember talking to an old lady interviewing her for one of my telly programmes years ago. And she was in her 90s down the Cedidigion coast. And she said to me, well, you have to remember all the people that I remember, the sea captains that I remember from my youth. You know, they'd never been to Birmingham or Bilth Wells, but they, they knew Cape Town and Buenos Aires, like the back of their hands. You know, so there was that amazing outward looking world as well as the sort of slightly more uh, hunkered down inward one as well and I think that's a long tradition and I, I people get that people absolutely get that I suppose where I get I mean when I wrote Neighbours from Hell which was I'll be honest it's uh, it's not the book I would write now it's the book I wrote getting on for 10 years ago now and it was in my first two years of living in Wales and I was just 
amazed by some of the attitudes that I came up against from people like myself who'd moved here from, particularly from the Midlands, because in my part of Wales, in, in Mid Wales, it's mainly West Midlanders who, who, who move there. You know, and there was the, you know, the, the pure white flight racism of it. You know, they only moved there to get away from multiculturalism. And they'd moved into a place that they had no... They didn't even notice that there was another culture and another language going on. You know, it was the utter, willful ignorance of it. Because, of course, you can get away with never learning a word of Welsh. And it's not even just the language. It's, it's more about taking, taking no part and taking no interest in the place that you've landed in. I find that really amazing. Thankfully, I think they're the minority. They really are. Um, and an area like mine, I mean, is, is proudly mixed. You know, there's all sorts of things going on and people from all kinds of different communities. And they do their own thing and they mix as well. You know, there's, there's all, all a bit of both. Um, but yeah, it's an eternally thorny topic because we are in a world now where people are on the move. You know, we see it in, in some awful ways uh, where people are being forced out of in terrible, dangerous situations and onto leaking boats across the Mediterranean and all the rest of it right through to the people looking for the, for the sort of dream quiet life and the place to retire we live in a much more mobile world and it's how you do that right that's the challenge
we're looking at these, we're still standing in this grove of beechwoods and, and the reasons why these ones weren't felled like everything else was around here to fire the giant furnaces which are across that mountain, the Blorange Mountain. Oh, cool. they, they, this is too steep uh, they, and they just couldn't get down here. It wasn't economical to get down here to cut it down. Otherwise, they, they would have done. Um, that whole industrial world of Wales, just a few miles that way, Blind Avon, all the way along to, uh, to, to Neath and Port Talbot, that is a, an aspect of incomer activity in Wales and hyper-mobility of Welsh people. So iron masters oh. coming from the Midlands to set up where the, all the natural resources were here. There was nobody up there when oh. they moved where they were. There were some sheep farmers, but in, in terms of the scale of the population, very, very little. And then a huge amount of rural depopulation. I remember reading somewhere that Wales was the country that first became more urban than rural in the world. 51% oh. urban and sometime in the 19th century during oh. the in industrial boom. Places like Merthyr would have been, I mean, they call it uh, Merthyr the first industrial metropolis, really, of, of, the, of, the, of the modern world. And in, in so many ways it was. You look at the maps, I mean, I go back to maps like I always do. You go back to the contemporary maps of the late 1700s, you know, when it, when it was boom, you know, it was, and, and it was this lawless boom town of, you know, of, of kind of bordellos and pubs as well as all the, the mines and the ironworks and all the rest of it there was all the sort of stuff that went with it and it was a tremendous magnet for people from all over the world I mean people from continental Europe came and lived there people from all parts of Wales and rural parts of England you know it was for a youngster growing up in rural cardigan should say you know why wouldn't you go to the big metropolis earn well you know work hard play hard uh, it would have been kind of quite an appealing I mean yes it could be very dangerous as well and it's gone from being this, as you know, this this sylvan river valley with just a few farms dotted around it, to being this kind of spider's web of railways and pits and houses and and it was it was kind of boomtown. It was sort of Klondike boomtown. I mean, unplanned, chaotic. And when a place is built in that way and only for that reason, when that reason goes, boy, have you got problems? And these are the problems that we're still trying to sort of deal with now. You know, I don't know if anyone has yet found the answers, but they're systemic problems. And it's not just in South Wales. You see them in lots of parts of the west of Scotland, parts of South Yorkshire, you know, similar sort of stuff, really. So you stood in the general election. You stood for Parliament for a party, Plaid Cymru, that wants Wales to be an independent country. Well, actually, do you know what? But it is sort of party policy now, but it's, kind of, it's always been a party about advancing Wales's corner. I'm being a little bit coy about the the I word. Uh, I think now we're coming around to that, and I think the the whole Brexit, you know, what's happened since the referendum on the EU, has sort of sharpened the focus a bit because it looks it looks almost inevitable that Scotland will go independent in the next few years. I mean, if if they hold the referendum anytime soon, I think it's really quite likely that that will happen. Scotland voted massively to remain in the EU they've been taken out or they are being taken out against their will really and I think that's only going to harden the case for for a change they've got some work to do the independence people because oh, the right. polls are not showing that at the minute right the polls right. haven't shifted in the way you no. describe partly because of the fact of oh how would it be different um to be Scotland in the EU with a hard border with England how would that affect the economy I mean that's what it all comes down to doesn't it and the oil price going down massively since the uh, the last independence referendum, referendum. Yes. Yeah. and Wales has always seemed to be the case for independence is also immediately hobbled by the economic challenges that Wales 
spaces, yeah. chiefly because of these sort of post-industrial areas that aren't doing so well right yeah. now. And what, what's, the, what's yeah. the solution to that? How would you make Wales more prosperous and happy and successful than, than England? Because surely that must be what the objective of your oh, party ab- is no, to, a- to, absolutely, to happen. Absolutely, I mean, I think, you know, I think Wales is a land rich in potential. Uh, that is, a lot of it is untapped potential at the moment. I mean, you look at the things that are going to be of importance in the 21st century and it's you know it's it's power generation it's water it's those sort of resources you know and that is something that wales could do brilliantly i mean the area of wales that i live in it's not in a good way at the moment but the alternative energy system we've got the center for alternative technology we've got a companies like dillas engineering who have been at the forefront of of renewable technology you know we've got the wind we've got the tides you know we've got the second highest tidal drop in the world washing up the Bristol Channel on the English coast and the Welsh coast twice a day, every day, regular as clockwork, a 50-foot drop every day. You know, we need to look at how to harness this. Uh, this is the future of... of but does that employ many people? Well, it could do. I mean, you've got to develop the specialisms, and you've got to develop the engineering and the research and development and all the rest of it to, to make this not just a place where the energy is produced, some for export. Uh, I mean, technology is, is, is rapidly... You know, in terms of energy capture and how to store it and all the rest of it, that's, that's improving by the day, really. The mechanics of it, the research and, and you know, putting it into the universities and, and getting the, the, the specialisms here, you know, on site, on, in situ, if you like. Uh, so there's a lot of potential in that, um, potential in water. I mean, water is undoubtedly going to be the big necessity of the 21st century. You know, places, you know, places are running out of water. You can't sell water to uh, Saudi Arabia from Wales, can you? No, but you can um, probably, you know, you can sell it... More, you know, much nearer to home, and maybe to England. Well, yes. I mean, it's already taken. You know, I mean, my my water authority where I live in Mid Wales is the English Water Authority Seven Trent, and they pipe the water from Mid Wales to the West Midlands, and we pay more for it in Mid Wales than I used to pay when I lived in Birmingham. You know, I mean, it's it's just a nonsense, really, and that, those kind of things do need to be changed. You know, historically, I mean, it was coal, it was iron, it was natural resources like that that were extracted and, and shot eastwards and now it's still kind of happening really to some extent and I want as a member applied and as a you know a failed politician in that regard and thankfully failed, failed politician but I, I just want Wales to realise its potential and I think the potential here is enormous as I do in England as well my problem it's not I, I, I'm not hidebound with one particular outcome an independent Wales I mean what's independence in the modern world anyway I mean even North Korea isn't a truly independent nation but my beef really is the UK as a nation state. I have real problems with that. I think you know, historically it was established as a tool of imperialism, colonialism, the industrial age. Those were all gone. And we've still got this structure which panders to that vanished age. And we've got to get over it. You know, we've got to, We're not the big kid in the playground anymore. We've got to get over that. And I think we'd all be, the nations of this island would be an awful lot better if we could work out a new relationship between them. One of my big campaigns, really, is I want people to sort of re- remember that Britain is a geographical entity. Britain is an island. We all share it. You know, we're all here together. We've got a shared history. The UK is, is, a, is a political nation state that was, you know, and they are different, and I want, want that to be kind of remembered. But it's an increasingly unequal nation states you know uh, geographically unequal between the sort of southeast of the country and i'm not saying they're having it good down there because you know london's becoming unlivable for anybody not earning a small fortune 
you know, it's impossible to live there. So, you know, the gap, the gap between the, 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 sort of the, the very, very wealthy and everybody else is growing. The gap between regions is growing because it's inherently an unequal country, the way, it's, the way it's built. So I think we really do have to go back to the drawing board and say, we've got to do better than this. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, I, I think that's part of, the, part of the process. We need to undergo that process to find out what might be a better solution. Shall we cross this rather beautiful canal bridge? There are some fiercely <laughs> treacherous cobbles on the far side. So, uh, so they've been there a while. Take care with those 16-inch wheels. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to try and cycle over this. <laughs> or me. Then we turn right onto the uh, onto the path there. Well, we've just wor worked our way back along along the canal. That was blinking beautiful. That was. It really was. I mean. I've got to, it is an awful long time. I don't cycle very much. And uh, just the joy of cycling along a lovely canal path, that is really special, actually. We can hear the heads of the valleys and we can see it. It is a long way away. Um, there's pylons there going up the, up the valley. Um, there's the, the cemetery over there. And then yeah. we've got um, Eskirid Vaur and Eskirid Vach there. The 
two of the seven mountains that surround Abergavenny. The Skirid is a great mountain, the, the isn't it? The Derry um, with the yeah. Croissor. Do you see, can you see that on the bracken? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's, oh, wow. That's, and there's normally a smiley face on there. Who put, but, who but, put Croissor up there, then? They've done that for their... Well, just the kids, I think. Oh, how fantastic. Um, the, the kids normally put a smiley face, kind of acid face yeah. up there in the summer. Because <laughs> that's, where, that's where they camp out. There's, there's, sort of, there's a great... The trees up on the, on the Derry, uh, the beautiful kind of sessile oak wood up there. Um, is a great place to have a kind of little rave. Yeah. So they go up there. There's quite a tradition around here, isn't there, for youngsters just to kind of go off up into the hills with your mates and a tent and a few gallons of cider and all the rest of yeah. it. And, and, and stamp and out something yeah. on, the, uh, on the bracken. Yeah, so that's stamp there. Croiso into the mountain. And then we've got um, the Sugarloaf up to our left. So we've got quite, kind of quite a vista here. Yeah. Um, and um, I've, got, I've got some maps here. As I felt like we've got... Oh, nice. We've got the... The Ordnance Survey map for the area, um, which is very familiar and very... F- it's beautiful because of its function, I think. Do you know what? I've got one in my bag as well. You can play, you can play you? map snap. And then um, the, the old Bart's half-inch oh, map. Oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? Um, which this one has... This is the, the, the sheet for South Wales. And um, this, this one has got the, the Cyclist Touring Club sticker on oh, the yes. front there. Yes. Because... Um, they were corrected and improved with the input from members of, of the okay. Cyclist Touring Club. So kind of very early form of user-generated gen- yeah. content yeah. crowdsourcing. Yeah, so um, these were really the preeminent maps for the cycle tourist because I feel like you can get a sense of a whole landscape and, and where you might go in a day's ride with well, one the, of these maps. They were the first ones to pioneer the whole kind of idea of contour shading. So you do, you look at the map, and especially a map of an area like this, which is full of mountains. I mean, we've got the Brecon Beacons and and up towards the Black Mountains on it, and all the valleys, of course. I mean, if you're a cyclist, you want to know where the, the nasty contours are. You know, you, that's, that's not just incidental information, that's key to your day out, isn't it? And so it doesn't really have as detailed contours. I mean, it has got the contour lines, but they're, they're, they're shaded with colour, um, which was a technique developed and really advanced by Bartholomew's, wasn't it, in the um, well, it was, 1890s? It was, it was, yeah, it was John George Bartholomew III, who was the... Uh, there were five John Bartholomews who ran Barts, and he was the, the, the middle one uh, of three. And he, he, he was an absolute perfectionist. He was, he was noted for his colour obsession. You know, he was a real perfectionist, to the point where when the postage rate went up in, sometime in the 19th century, and it went up from a penny to a penny halfpenny, they produced a new stamp, and he didn't like the colour of the stamp, so he refused to let anybody in the office use these brown i think it was some kind of brown penny halfpenny stamp and he made everybody use the the penny red and the the green halfpenny stamp rather than the, the, this new color because he wasn't so but it, it paid off i mean his his obsession because it, it you instantly with the greens of the lowlands getting sort of deeper into the in towards the coast and then the browns and the purples and the whites of the of the mountains and hills i mean they, they, these outsold ordnance survey in their day i mean back in the turn of the 20th century Bartholomew's maps were the map of choice. Ordnance surveys were really for kind of government use only and nobody would, you know, only the most obsessive collectors really would, would buy an OS. It was quite difficult to buy an OS, actually. I mean, they were only sold in a couple of places or by post. Whereas Bart's were the ones on the, on the station newsstand. They were in every high street. They knew how to advertise themselves. They were, they were commercial and confident, you know. They went on producing these maps right up until uh, particular beauty areas, you know, like the popular touristy areas right until the early 80s but you know that was the age of the road atlas and all that kind of thing and you would not most people wouldn't buy 
loads of individual maps when you for, for a couple of quid more or whatever you could get one road atlas that covered because the road country. the road atlas doesn't do the same job as a big sheet of paper in terms of no. kind of conceptualizing what your day or week's journey might be like yeah absolutely and this is why paper maps will never die because for all the screens that we can produce and for all the gizmos and gadgets that we are so slavishly addicted to to get a sense of the context and the perspective of the landscape that you're in if you're walking it or cycling it or swimming it or whatever or driving it even nothing beats getting the map out and getting a sense of the sheer scale of it and you and, and you're never going to get this on a phone you're just not or even on a on a on a big you know a bigger screen uh, and that's one of the reasons why paper maps will never dry there are others but that's one of them i tell you what during when i wrote map addict <clears throat> i had so many letters from people telling me of their love of bartholomew's maps they are so loved they are beautiful and they're very cheap i mean <clears throat> you can pick them up for a couple of quid in yeah. a, a second-hand bookshops so they're worth they're worth looking out you don't have to, it's not so difficult to build up a a full collection what's the what's uh, well it's not that many not, of them, not that it, many of them well. they're quite big areas yeah 62 will get you the whole country uh, whereas it's 204 for the land ranger maps isn't it the purple ones the Ordnance survey but these i mean i i can't imagine life without these maps and I, I do remember geography learning these maps and when I was first introduced to them I think I must have been about 11 and we had a geography teacher and geography did seem to involve a lot of looking at these maps and tests on what was a church with a tower versus what was a church with a spire and and all the different mm. symbols and things like that and drawing the, the shapes of mountains from looking at the contours and then looking at a photograph and being asked to draw the contours and all, you know, all that sort of reverse engineering of these maps. They kind of feel hardwired into my brain and, and in a way that I can't really use another map to, to w- find my way around this country. And when I, when I go to France or Switzerland or whatever and I've got a whole different map series, I feel like not only am I struggling with my French, I'm struggling with understanding the map because this is just so instantly recognisable and yeah. I can instantly know what this is all about when I look at this map I think it's just a wonderful thing and as I say it's kind of hardwired into us I mean I always say when I do talks about mapping and stuff I mean one of the definitions of are you a map addict or not is quite simply you go abroad you pick up a local map from the tourist office or whatever else you open it up and your first thought is hmm, it's not as good as an ordinance survey uh, because it won't be it really won't be and uh and that is a good enough definition, I think. You know, you, and they are an absolute sort of icon of of Britishness, really. I mean, I've, I've, I've you know I've been talking about that in other in a more political sense, but you know, having the nation mapped out so beautifully, so assiduously, so thoroughly. I mean, I've got on my wall in my office an eighteen ninety ish, I think it is eighteen eighty something, eighteen ninety, twenty five inch to the mile map. So that's the the biggest general scale in the countryside uh, by the ordinance of it of, of where I live you know and it's just extraordinary I mean this is rural Montgomeryshire and they've got you know every little kind of pool and, and and tiny little trickle of a stream it's all on there and this was done before aerial surveying this was done before you know it was it was fellas in gaiters stumbling up and down the contours you know getting it all into their notebooks I mean it's just extraordinary really how how heroic a lot of that was they are so beautiful i mean i i i don't know if this is an age thing or whether i'm just getting to the point in my life where nothing's quite as good as it used to be 
Um, maybe that is just just I'm 50 this year, so maybe that's that's part of that. But I do think they're getting a little bit cluttered. Some of these maps, and and, and this is this is uh, this isn't too bad because they, they've added more stuff on since then. Because nowadays, of course, you've got all the bike paths, you've got all the uh, leisure trails, and, and they faithfully put all these things on. And sometimes the amount of tourist information, in particular, can make them quite uh, cluttered and a bit unwieldy. And of course, these maps now. I mean, this this is a one to fifty thousand Land Ranger map. They are the poor relation now. I mean, in very very quick uh, amount of time, the the Explorer series, the, the orange covered ones, which are double the scale, one to twenty five thousand, have become the runaway bestseller because they are so much better for leisure uses. You know, um, they're better for walking, cycling, maybe mountain biking. They're good for cycling in terms of being on the lanes and on the roads. You need too many of them. And so it would yeah, only really that. make sense yeah. if you had them in your pocket on a phone. And, and in fact, I, I, was, I just downloaded the Ordnance Survey's new app um, where you can get a subscription to everything, which is all the 1 to 25,000 and all the 1 to 50,000 on your phone for something like 23 quid a year for wow. everything, which seemed wow. to me, and I was like, where's the catch? Yeah. It seems a very yeah. good deal. But then, as you said, it's quite small um, and it's quite useful if you're lost and you want to sort of see where you are, but not very useful for getting a, 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 sort of a wide sweep of the landscape. Well, we've got a nice bit of Monmouthshire light over there. Beautiful. Is that what you're talking about? That is exactly what I'm talking about. And it is, there's a kind of goldenness to it, which always reminds I'll tell you what Monmouthshire always reminds me of when I when I trundle around here. And I've done a lot of trundling around here. I, I do sometimes in my more fanciful moments kind of think, oh, I'm in, some, in the Camargue or the Dordogne or something like that. There's something quite French about it. There's some of the architecture of some of the, and you must find these on your bike rides. You know, you come across some of these really solid old farms and barns. Yes. And they look like they're from a... Yeah, yeah. they do remind me. Particularly as you go down towards Newport on yeah. that, uh, uh, from, from here, as the valley becomes flatter, there are some fabulous barns mm. um, and tiny little churches yeah. as well, um, um, sort of hidden away in, in, uh, in crooks of the, yeah. of the hill. But my theory about, about the beautiful light, particularly in Abergavenny, is that you get these storms that break over the Brecon Beacons. Mm. And so we're in a kind of rain shadow here. So what you get are these fragments of a heavy storm that's big Atlantic weather that's coming from the west and it's sort of rained like crazy up in the valleys on Brecon Beacons. And then you just get the fragments that come through, these kind of puffy clouds, and you therefore you get the kind of god beams coming through the holes in the clouds. So those sort of puffy clouds over there, and and you get this particularly evening... Yes. kind of light it certainly seems to happen in the evening often the days start a little bit murky i mean sometimes the days start with a blanket mist in the usk valley and you come up to here and you're kind of you see those are islands yeah those, yeah. Uh, those, those peaks over there are islands floating in the uh, in, in the in the cloud but generally it seems like the days kind of get better and then uh, and then you get you know this blue sky and i think it's to do with the the, the rain shadow effect yeah. it is the quality of the sunshine after the rain that is what it makes you're absolutely right i hadn't ever put it into those those terms but that actually is what it is it's that kind of golden diffuse light that uh well, you get a lot you get a lot of contrast so because you look up there the sugarloaf is dark it's in mm. shadow and then you, but then you've got light sort of falling on the skirid over there so um you sound like a very happily landed man in this part <laughs> of the world you really do shall we continue on yes and then descend we're going to go down through a, a bit of portage we have to carry these things which is uh, not the end of the world. And then we're going to go through a tunnel. All right. Sounds good. I'm enjoying the Brompton, by the way. It's yeah. quite cute. Yeah, it's fun. I'm 
Because if I'm honest, I always thought people looked a little bit idiotic on these things, but I can't see myself on it, so I don't care. It feels like it it disappears beneath you, and you cycling is really the closest you get to flying, I think, <laughs> apart from actually jumping out of an aeroplane. No, I can see your point. It's, this has... I have got a bike mouldering away in the barn at home, and because uh, it's very hilly where I live, it really is. Uh, I mean, I, my office looks out over the lane, and I see it's at the top of a very, very steep hill, and I see cyclists coming past every now and again, and they look like they're just at death's door when they can wobble to the top of the lane. And those that stayed on the bikes, I mean, I just want to go out and applaud them because it's, it's about three quarters of a mile of hideously steep. It's two chevrons on the, on the audience survey map. It's that steep. So um, you, you said you're turning 50. You are turning 50. Or you have I, I know 50. I will be at Christmas. Okay. Uh, well, I've got the perfect combined Christmas and birthday, 50th birthday <laughs> present, which you should buy yourself or have somebody buy for you. An electric bike. Oh, oh yes. Well, I, I, Seriously, um, I have Mike. thought about it, Jack. I really have. It's contem- I've contemplated because the nearest town, McHuntleth, is six miles away. I would love to be able to do that on a uh, We're going to go down these steps here. I lied and we're not actually going to go through this tunnel, um, but we'll get Ooh. a good look at it. So this oh, is a uh, rather fabulous... Fabulous tunnel. This is um, the, 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 the sort of pedestrian route up onto the mountain. On the underneath, the, we're going underneath the um, the canal. Yeah, well, we have, we actually walked in it now, haven't we? Well, we couldn't well, resist. We're kind of going through the canal because it's really quite wet down here. So <laughs> we have to go back again because we're going we're going down the hill. But um, yeah, this is um, it's fabulous, isn't it? It's a pretty good one, isn't it? Oh, listen to that sound of dripping water coming from the canal above us. That's reassuring, isn't it? <laughs> There's proper running water somewhere. <laughs> is it is it a stream up there? Is it a stream? So this is a stream passing beneath the tunnel which goes under the canal. Yeah. <laughs> Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood, skin and bone A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load a 16 ton and water you get Another day older and deeper in death St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can go I owe to the company store I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 ton on number 9 coat The strong bars are set with a midnight sword You loaded 16 ton and only you get them Another day older and deeper in bed. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I, I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain, fighting and trouble on my middle name. I was raised in the Cambridge. By an old mama lion Can't no hot corner woman make me Hot the line You're 
deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I, I can't go I owe my soul to the company store If you see me coming Better step aside A lot of men didn't A lot of men died I got one fist of iron The other of steel If the rapper don't get to them They left for wheel You load it 16 ton And what do you get? Another day older And deeper in death St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go I owe my soul To the company well, Mike, we're back. We're back at the bridge. We've just descended from the canal, past our tunnel, through Clamfoist, and uh, over the bridge, which is engulfed in traffic, uh, as it was when we went over the other yeah, way. Yeah, it always is. And um, are you feeling like? You want to get into that water and have a swim? Well, well there's three boys who are <laughs> already leading at it. the way. I know, I know. Good, good, well done them. The water's uh, it's, it's the colour of a good pint, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's available over there at the bridge. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's a bit of a toss-up as to what's, uh, what's the better option, really. It's deep, so it's deep enough to have a proper swim. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that you don't have to worry about that, that sort of foamy stuff. That's just, um, That's just algae, I think, and kicked up by the, the weir. The weir, yeah. just there. Yeah. There's a fisherman standing under the bridge looking like... That's, that's an absolutely timeless picture, isn't it? He could have been there from any time in the last 200 years, really. And he's looking at us with... I can't quite see his face, but it looks like sheer incredulity. It's the idea yeah. that anybody might want well, to... He's probably irritated at my bright orange shirt that is <laughs> scaring the fish away because they, apparently they're sensitive to um, the, the, what people are wearing, which is why the fishermen always wear their sort of muted colours. Yeah, give it a go. Go on then. Give let's, it a go. Let's, let's get in there. Absolutely wonderful. I'll tell you what, some of the coaches going over that bridge did not give some funny looks. <laughs> but I'm sure they were looks of, I wish we were in that river with them. It has got the quality of beer, 
very much like a good pint of bitter, the colour of the water. It's going to be better than anything you can get from the chemist or, you know, your skin will glow like a sort of aftermath of a nuclear attack tonight and you'll feel beautiful. Well, we're back at the uh, the Castle Meadows in Abergavenny at the Eisteddfod uh, entrance. Mike, you're going to dive back into this wonderful festival of Welsh culture and language and music and song and drinking and, and rain. It's now raining beautifully in a typical, you know, this is a typical good Welsh summer's day, isn't it? I know, the rain, it's quite weird. We just got out of the water and it sort of comes onto rain. Yeah. What's the point of squealing about getting wet when you've just been swimming in the River Usk? It really, you know, exactly. we've got no complaints. So yeah, I t- t- towelled myself off, and now I'm uh, now I'm wet again. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure riding with you, and I, I hope I've helped to rekindle your fondness for the bicycle. You have, you really have. I, I've convinced myself that a, I'm nearly fifty. B, I've got a bit of arthritis starting in my knees, and I live in a very hilly place. And all those factors have kind of, I thought, right, no, it's not for me. But there, it is a really lovely way of getting around, actually. It really is. I mean, you know, why am I telling you that? It's ridiculous, but it, it was brilliant. I loved it. We haven't had a chance to talk about your campaign um, last year, but you have written a book about it that is something that you felt you had to get off your chest, right? To, the experience of becoming a politician, almost, I suppose, becoming a candidate and fighting an election. The reason I stood for election and got myself on the candidates' register and all that kind of stuff was there were two things. One was... A, is politics broken? That was my kind of fear that things, the whole system was in such a terrible state. And I wanted to look for myself, really. And yes, it kind of is, I'm afraid to say. Uh, but I think we've seen that all over the place at the moment. And the other one was, can somebody from outside of the kind of political bubble, me as a writer, I've been self-employed 25 years as a writer, can somebody like that go into, into the game? You know? And I wanted to find out for myself whether that was possible. Uh, and it all went very strange and it was an insane experience. It all kind of kicked off for all kinds of reasons. So I have written a book, The Greasy Pole, P-O-L-L. Uh, I am quite fond of my puns. Uh, the subhead of the book is Diary of a Controversial Election because it did prove to be very controversial. And it's, it's a lot of people who've read it, it came out a couple of months ago, a lot of people who've read it really said it's you know, tr- very, very honest and very forthright kind of look at the way politics is being done in this country at the moment and that's what I wanted to do so yeah that's that's done I'm glad I got a book out and that's out now is it that's out now uh the greasy pole but now it's time to go you know that was three years of my life two years as a candidate one year writing the book and now I want to get back to the places and the maps and the traveling and the you know there's still politics in my work there'll always be politics in my work because that's everything is about politics but not in that way and have you got an idea for the next one very much so yeah there's, there's two books I want to write next. Uh, they kind of dovetail slightly into each other, but um, I need to work out the logistics of it now. I was riding with Mike Parker, and if you want to find out more about Mike and his books, which I highly recommend, he's got a website, mikeparker.org.uk. And if you enjoyed the music choices in the show, I've put some notes on the Bike Show website about where you can find out more. Until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye.